LiveFlow is known for saving accountants time. Hours, days, even weeks for some. Well, LiveFlow has done it again, saving accountants even more time with their new feature, Automated Multi-Entity Consolidation. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, LiveFlow, later in the episode. So it's like the big four becomes idolized, the partner track becomes idolized. Nobody's talking about industry, right? Or nobody's talking about, hey, you know, only 2% of the new entrants to public accounting actually make partner. I don't know that anybody ever says that. And nobody ever asked the question, well, what do the other 98% do, right? Like, none of that is ever discussed. So if you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'm Blake Oliver, joined today by Mike Manilak. Mike, how you doing? Good, Blake. Thanks for having me. Excited to do the show. Uh, you're putting out a lot of good stuff, so uh, glad to be a part of it. Thank you. So Mike, I'm so excited to talk to you because you are an accounting manager at Google. I have heard it's a great place to work. What is it like working at Google? It is kind of everything that you hear. You know, a lot of people talk about the perks, right? But the actual work is really exciting too. So I'm an accounting manager. I'm on a, a team. We go by the business finance accounting team, mainly handling a lot of revenue accounting transactions, but oversee a team of five distributed across the country. I'm located here in, in Chicago in our office in the West Loop. I specifically work on two of our, our biggest products, uh, Google Search and YouTube. Um, specifically the the different deals that we make with our top advertisers to to increase their investment with Google and then to adopt our latest and greatest products. So it's a very cool side of the business. And um, yeah, even even with all of the some of the impacts from the post pandemic to tech, I mean, Google is still such a, a great place to work. It was it was my dream job getting in here. And I'd still say even with uh, everything that's changed over the years, uh, Still is. It's a, it's a it's a fun time. You mentioned revenue accounting. Yep. I imagine like most people would not want to dig into that, but this is an accounting <laughs> podcast, so I do want to dig All into right. that. Nice. Revenue accounting for Google search and for YouTube. Yeah. What, what is what do you mean by revenue accounting? Uh, so I mentioned like the deals that we're making with our top advertisers. If you can imagine, you know, the mom and pop that's running some Google ads isn't going to get the same deal as say the the Procter and Gambles or the Netflixes of the world, right? So uh, a lot of those bigger customers, they're not just spending on Google ads, they're spending on Google Cloud, YouTube, Search, our display business, they're using Workspace and, you know, investing in maps and like all, all kind of things like that. So um, essentially those contracts become pretty, pretty heavy. Uh, a lot of various, uh, to get technical for a second, a lot of different performance obligations all bundled into one contract. I mentioned a couple of big names, but like you can imagine the the deal that we'll make with with L'Oreal, for instance, is is going to be very different than the deal we make with a Ford Motor Company or a Coca Cola and things like that. So when you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on Google Ads, you you want a little bit of a, a special treatment and. Uh, and things like that. So the the contracts can get customized pretty quickly. Uh, we push standardization pretty hard, as uh, I'm sure you and a lot of your listeners can uh, can relate to. But 
the contracts get pretty complicated. So a lot of uh, that's that's where the accounting team comes into play. And we also work uh, less with a bunch of other accountants and more so with cross-functional teams. Um, so like our legal and compliance and engineer and sales and as well as like our FP&A, which is probably our closest finance ally there. Uh, we work with those various teams to put this stuff together. And um, so that's a little bit of a glimpse into, you know, what does a revenue accountant at Google Google do? Yeah, uh, that, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm picturing these massive contracts with these other big companies, and you've got to break all that out and recognize that revenue. Do you see AI helping you to do that more in the future? Do you use specialized tools for revenue accounting, or, or are you building those tools yourselves at Google? It's so funny because you can't even have a conversation about anything without AI coming into play and... Um, of course, at Google, you know, being uh, at the forefront of this, like it's it's a big uh, it's it's in all aspects of every team at Google. So even uh, we have our own we have our own AI called Bard and generative AI that is is part of search. I think for the most part, I, I do have it as part of like my everyday. Uh, a lot of that is is uh, sort of being piloted with the, the Google employees. So I get to see the the different generative AI that's implemented into search that we can talk about it a, a little bit in uh, as much as you want, but some really powerful stuff going on in there. But that's more of just the as a user of the Google products, like what that might look like one day. Finance in general is is starting. We have this whole basically school, Google school called Finance Academy, uh, where we're having, I think, 101 classes for AI kind of kicked off maybe three months ago. And there's all these various other tools that are, I guess, cascaded down to the various teams and, and things like that. But really, it's our leadership now that is trying to figure out, like, how do we get on this uh, AI train? And I think a lot of times it comes off as like a buzzword, how somebody's going to use it, but it's really cool to see it being, uh, you know, very tangible and, and very much relevant in all the conversations at Google. So nothing that like today I have AI uh, responding to my emails, although I can have some of that, right? And uh, things like that, but it's still very much uh, human involvement, I guess, at this point. And the subject matter expertise is is still with the uh, the human here. So, uh, but interested to see how fast that changes. What about spreadsheets? Uh, do you have pressure to use Google Sheets for everything at a Google, or can you do whatever you want? So you can, it's funny because you can download Excel. I feel like most accountants, and I came, you know, I came from the public accounting route, and Excel is, you know, there's a point where you don't even need to use your mouse because you're just all Excel shortcuts. That's how you know you're you're at the top of your game. Uh, coming into Google, it is very much pushed to use Google Sheets. Well, basically, the whole workspace uh, used to be called G Suite. That whole workspace product is is heavily used. Same with Chat and and Gmail. Like that's essentially what we use for everything that we do. So there is definitely like the default is Google Sheets. Uh, finance, you can download Excel. You have to. It's funny. You have to add a little description. The question is, why can't you use Google Sheets? When you go to download Excel and you have to justify it, you have That's to justify great. it. So like I basically have it so that I don't have to convert things from uh, Excel to Sheets. But for the most part, I, I'm I'm fully ingrained into Google Sheets now. I've been using it for six years and a lot of the same formulas and and uh, features are, are very similar too. 
Personally, I mean, I can't say I was ever an Excel power user, but I never really saw like massive missing gaps. I didn't understand why people were so resistant when I would send them a Google Sheet link and they'd say, no, no, I want this in Excel. I, yeah. I always thought the collaboration was worth it, you know, like whatever oh, trade-off you had to make. Yeah. Big time. <laughs> yep. Same with docs too. Like I, I use, even in my personal life now, that's how you can, you could tell them maybe a little bit of a homer here, but like between spreadsheets for your personal stuff and docs for your personal things and adding comments and, you know, sharing it with different people, friends and family and stuff like that. It's uh it's something I use at work, but also in my, you know, personal life too. So you're an accounting manager at Google. I saw that you were at Walmart before Google yep. for a little while. Yeah. And before that, you were in public accounting. Is that right? So I'm from the Baltimore area, I've, uh, so the East Coast. I've, I've since moved to the West Coast in San Francisco, and that's when I was with uh, Walmart and when I started at Google. Right now, and then I moved to the Midwest, so I've kind of tried to cover a lot of bases here on, on the country. But yeah, came up on the East Coast through the, the public accounting circuit. I'm sure a lot of your listeners probably can relate to that. So I was on the, the audit side of the house for a top 20 firm named Cohn Resnick, um, and that was before shifting over to big four with uh, PwC. But I did uh, just shy of a decade. Sometimes I say a decade because I feel like to say nine, I feel like is a little bit shy. But uh, if you count my, up. if you count my internship, uh, I could probably say a decade. But yeah, I did a decade in audit, uh, mainly with financial services clients and uh, real estate companies. Um, so that was sort of my bread and butter uh, while I was there. And uh how did you decide to be an auditor? Um, you know, it's funny, like maybe we all go through this like sophomore year in college after your 101s. What do I want to major in? I think I took a, it was a 101 intro to accounting class. I thought it was, it, it kind of clicked for me. Maybe I was always a numbers guy. I'm not entirely sure, but um, the analytical side was, was definitely playing to my strengths. And I actually exceeded in that role or in that, uh, in that class. And a lot of my, uh, classmates were, would always complain about how hard it was. And I was thinking, well, maybe that's something I should look into a little bit more. And my dad, who, who was an engineer for AT&T, he's, he's retired now, but he was always a big proponent to, you know, if you're going to major in something, make sure that there is a job for you when you graduate. Uh, which sounds very basic, but I mean, you probably know this. There's there's so many majors and so many areas of study where you graduate and you're looking for a job. There there might not be a demand in the market. And uh, I know you talk about this a lot, but we don't have that problem in accounting. <laughs> there's definitely a demand not. for uh, for yeah. accountants. So <laughs> I was a music major in yeah? Chicago okay. of all oh, places. Nice. So I know nice. you're in the loop, right? Yeah. I was yeah. at Northwestern. And, oh, very uh, cool. Great school, uh, not the right major for trying to get a job after you graduate. And yeah. I ended up getting into accounting because it was something that people really wanted to pay me to do. And I knew that I'd always have work and I'd never have to worry about you know paying the bills. And uh, well, that's that's been true. Yeah, yeah. It's cool to hear too because uh, you know you you wouldn't think that there's the the creative arts merges very well with you know the the buttoned up accounting stereotypes that you hear, but I, I feel like I hear it all the time, especially it was one of the reasons, uh, even with Walmart too, I was working on the e-commerce side of things, but then even at Google, 
you know, you're working with a lot of really smart and talented and uh, people that wear a lot of hats have eclectic sets of interest. I run into people all the time that are super creative or have a music background and things like that. If anything, I think it's a huge advantage. So uh, cool to hear that from you too. Maybe that's why you're you're here putting out these podcasts. I'm curious, do you play any instruments, Blake? I play the cello. Yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting talking with folks in the profession who are doing interesting things like yourself. I keep hearing this theme that soft skills really matter in accounting and yep. knowing how to work with people and collaborate with people. And there's many ways to learn those skills. For me, music helped me learn how to play in a string quartet and in an orchestra. And that's all about dynamics with groups of people and individuals. And I feel like it doesn't matter if you're playing a string quartet or if you're closing the books for you know last month or last quarter. It's kind of the same thing in the end. That might be counterintuitive, but um, you know it, it's all about working with those people to get the job done. Yeah, I've never heard accounting in a string quartet comparison, but you know you're not you're not that far off. Um, I feel like uh, when you were saying you know the similarities there, there's something about picking up an instrument all on your own, and you know today with the soft skills is one thing, but it's also just being able to solve uh, ambiguous problems is a big attribute and you know character trait everyone's looking for for accounting professionals. There's nothing more daunting than like picking up uh, an instrument and saying, okay, play something, you know, everything, it's all multitasking. Another big one that you need in, yeah. in accounting. It's all like working with ambiguity and then even following the, uh, the lead of others if you're playing in the quartet and things like that. So there are a lot of similarities and, you know, and that's, that soft skills can be learned a lot of different ways, but it's definitely a big thing as far as communication styles and public accounting is really good with that too. You know, like that's not just something uh, that you have to take a creative arts background or uh, even working in industry. Like I feel like a lot of those communication skills got built in uh, public accounting too, but definitely something that's top of mind. And I feel like it still kind of flies under the radar, but you know, like you said, like it's coming up a lot more and more now. Well, and this brings me to, the topic of how do we help other accountants be happier in their jobs. It seems to me, just looking at your LinkedIn, looking at your website, Mike, looking at your posts, uh, this is the first time we've talked in person, but just looking yep. at what you put out there on the internet, you really love your job and you really love accounting. But at the same time, we also have a recent study by my former employer, Flowcast, which found that 60% of accountants rate their job satisfaction as a C or lower. So 60%, more than half of accountants, rate their job as a C or lower. How do we, I guess, like how do we help them get more out of their jobs? Like what, there's something, there's a gap here in that we've got this great job, offers a lot of security, a lot of money, uh, a lot of potential, but then all these folks are just not really liking it. Yeah, it's it's so unfortunate. I think some of it is um, we could probably talk the full hour about the image problem, right? I think some of it is an age-old stereotype. But I think a lot of it too is you don't hear that many success stories. I know you're highlighting a lot of those. That's why I was, you know, super excited to to come join the podcast. Yeah, you glad to have you on. We we need to have a success story on this yeah, show. So. And that's that's <laughs> the thing like there's not enough of that. 
right? There are a lot of accountants in cool roles, doing creative things, breaking the stereotypes. I just don't know if those voices are heard much. And it was part of why I, I sort of came out of the woodwork, so to speak, to kind of put some stuff out there to say, like, everyone's bad mouth. And if, you know, I'm on the Reddit uh, circles and the, the accounting subreddit, it's it's a lot of doom and gloom. That, that stat doesn't shock me. But it is very unfortunate because it's not the reality that I see. So a lot yeah. of if you're saying, like, how do we how do we um, address that? I think you're doing it. I'm, I'm trying to do it by highlighting some of the, the cool side of the uh, the accounting space. And I think that's kind of what uh, th- what I'm posting on LinkedIn is usually coming along with like an illustration that I put together. It's it's an informative post, but also pretty playful. I don't take myself too seriously and. I don't want to have. I think that's important. It is, and I don't want to have like a dry article, you know, like oh, what is he going to recite some ASC stuff for for me? Like I can, but that's not necessarily what I think people really want to hear. So, kind of just trying to break those stereotypes out in the town square, out in public, with a ton of your listeners, like you're doing, you know, on a on a weekly basis. So. That's what I'm trying to do too, and uh, have a couple different avenues that I'm I'm trying to take to get there. But I think it's important not yeah. just for the minority of us to do that, but I think I really hope the AICPA, when they're solving their 12 point plan, that this is a big chunk of it is trying to get uh, some more promotion for for some of that fun and fulfilling side of the profession. Because to your point, a lot of people don't see it, and I feel like they think that it doesn't exist. And uh, that's a problem. Yeah, and maybe maybe that's why these sixty percent of accountants, or let's just let's just say it's like half, right? Roughly, right? Yeah, we could be rough with the numbers. Let's say you know we got half that are happy and half that are unhappy. And the 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 part that are unhappy, I wonder if it's because they feel stuck because they've they've hit this point in their career where you know they're 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 not progressing, they're not learning. It's kind of Sally, right? It's the same yep. thing every month. That can get really tedious. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you ended up at Google doing a job you enjoy. Like, how did you, maybe you can be sort of a case study for others listening. Like, how did you end up, you know, getting there? I mean, you you made it through audit unscathed. You yep. didn't leave the profession. And then you got this job. Like, walk me through it. Like, how how has your career progressed in a, in a way that has gotten you to where you're at? Yeah, no. Yeah, thank- we can go back as far as you want. Yeah, well, let's go back to the beginning of time. No, uh, <laughs> no. I mean, I've been in, in my career for 15 years. I said I did a decade in public accounting. So I think what happens to a lot of people, we're all funneled. Most, I'd say, to use some rough numbers that I, you know, I'll just put my finger in the air. I bet you 99% of accountants that are, are you know, studying accounting in college you're basically funneled into public accounting. And I'm a big proponent of public accounting, so I don't want to put it down, but it almost seems like that's the only way. And the good part about public accounting is also kind of a little bit of a trap in that your career path is is very clear, crystal clear. You join as an associate, two and a half, three years later, you make senior, two and a half, year, three years later, you make manager. Um, that's right about the time, at least for me, right around I had made manager in public, had my CPA. I was doing some of this, the recurring audits for maybe three or four years even. And I started to think like, oh, man, is 
Is this my whole life? Like, is this what I want to do? And if you actually look to see, you know, a lot of people then make the jump to industry, which is what I did. There's a little bit of a dilemma there, because if you stay too long and you're not a lifer in public accounting, you can actually be a little, you can kind of be handicapping yourself. I think a lot of people talk about don't leave too early, don't leave before senior. Like there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, There's not a lot of people talking about don't stay too long. Don't overstay your welcome Mm. unless unless that's what you really want to do, right? Like a lot of my friends that that I came up with are partners now, you know, they're they're probably throwing down their card at lunch like I used to admire the partners doing all the time and and living a good life too. So, but that's not necessarily the life for everybody, but that is the life that the education system funnels you into. So, uh, at least for me, I was, uh, I don't know, approaching 30 and I was, my friends were having kids and settling down. And I was thinking like, is this, do I have another move in me? Like, is, what am I really trying to do? And, uh, I don't know that a lot of people really crystallize, like, what do you really want to do? I think you just kind of get funneled along. I call it like the lazy river approach to, uh, your career and in public accounting, it's very easy to get complacent because every couple of years you're getting promo, right? And and things like that. So anyway, I, I just really crystallized what I wanted. And somebody had asked me once uh, over drinks in D.C., like, hey, what what would your dream job be if you could ever have it? Uh, I don't know if you ever asked that question to people, but a lot of people don't know what to say. And in that moment, I didn't know what to say. And actually, the the first thing that jumped out to me was like, I don't know, maybe I'd work for Google or something. And uh, for some reason, when I said it and I put it out there, I couldn't not think about it anymore. And I started, you know, following the big tech industry. And uh, it seemed like all the cool companies that I was into were all located in the Bay Area. Right. And I was about as far from the Bay Area as you could be. So one day it was over, I remember pretty specifically, a barbecue joint called Dinosaur Barbecue in Harbor East. Uh, my wife and I were talking about, hey, maybe maybe we make a move. And I think uh, a few months later, I, I put in my notice at my firm. I rented my house. I put all my stuff in storage and sold my car, booked a one-way ticket to San Francisco with no place to live. And uh, and uh, I just rolled the dice for it. So uh, that was kind of a forcing function for me of saying, I got to bet on myself to try and and energize kind of what I'm going. And, you know, that kicked off a whole nother chapter of my career that, you know, later led to some other stuff. This episode of the Earmark podcast is sponsored by Liveflow. Did you hear the news? Liveflow just launched a new consolidation product. Liveflow power user Beth Melcher of MoneyFit said that Liveflow's consolidation is saving her team 15 to 20 minutes per client every week and eliminates the use of formulas. Liveflow's automated multi-entity consolidation is simple to use. You can easily map multiple unmatching charts of accounts from multiple QuickBooks online companies into one standardized report. Once it's set up, Liveflow works its magic, updating the consolidations automatically in real time, so you can focus on analysis using instantly updated data across entities. Liveflow can even consolidate financials that are in different currencies. And the possibilities don't stop there. Liveflow empowers you with flexible, powerful reporting tools to create customized dashboards that meet your specific needs. Build executive presentations, cash flow forecasts, and more with just a few clicks. 
to stop grueling over manual consolidation reports and to get 25% off your first three months, be one of the first 10 listeners to head over to earmarkcpe.promo slash liveflow. That is earmarkcpe.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. So you decided you wanted to go work for a tech company. So you quit your job and you sold your house and your car. And, and I mean, you, you, you basically just packed up and went. That sounds like when people go to LA to become actors, you know, you, yeah, you really yeah, yeah. took a, you really took a risk. Yeah. So, so what happened? You, you got to San Francisco and, and did you know anyone? How did you, how did you? I didn't know anyone. Uh, it was an exciting city from what I could tell. I'd actually never even visited SF. Um, now, now it's a former home, so I, you know, I have a lot, lot of love for SF. But I kind of thought I wanted to go swing big, right, just to te- test the water, see what I could do. New York was an obvious choice, being from the East Coast, but it was maybe a little too close to home. So I chose San Francisco, and I figured I had started looking at companies. I was uh, doing some like pro bono stuff for the sharing economy. This is when like Uber and Airbnb were like brand new. And I was a super host for Airbnb, renting out my house and ended up having a side hustle there. And that started sort of, uh, sort of started to like turn into something. And I wanted to be closer to the action. So the only constant there was that's when I made uh, the transition from Cone Resnick to PwC. So I did have a job with PwC. So okay. that at least was a constant. But I also knew I I didn't want to be in public forever. So I knew that was like the tail end of my public accounting career. And yeah, so I landed in San Francisco, uh, tried desperately to try and, and find a place to rent. And it's funny because like, you know, I, I ended up getting a one bedroom, 3000 bucks a month in uh, Knob Hill, and they make you put down first month's rent and a security deposit. Between the first month rent, security deposit, the hotels I was staying at and the flights, I was out 10 grand like that. And uh I had just <laughs> I had just bought a, a second property at the time and was broke. So, you know, it was it was kind of rolling the dice, but it was one of the the first time where I was really trying to say like if I'm going to do it, it's going to be now because I don't want to have a kid and have a family and not be able to pick up and leave. So, I kind of rolled the dice and, you know, thank thankfully public accounting took me there and then being there, I, I had my boots on the ground. I was able to knock on doors and and attend interviews and things like that. So, when you say knock on doors, were you like walking around to these, you know, tech company offices and 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 like just showing up at the finance department and saying, "I want to talk to the CFO. I'm an accountant yeah. for hire." How did that work? I'm I'm sure uh, if I had done that, they wouldn't have let me pass the uh, security check in uh, desk, but. But no, it, it was similar in that I I did need to go. This is this is pre-pandemic. Like on-site interviews were actually on-site, and uh, I was at the Embark Embarcadero office in, in with PwC, which is right down in the in the FIDI. And uh, you know, I remember like stashing a suit jacket. It was probably mm-hmm. overdressed at the time. Stashing a suit jacket in like the coat closet and. And having to go hide and, and go yeah. put it back on to run across the street to Salesforce to to actually have that on-site interview and things like that. So it's not that far off. Um, but I did get a little bit of a reality check thinking that 
I've got 10 years experience. I've got big four. Like I've got all this great resume. They're going to, they're going to welcome me in for these positions. And, uh, that actually wasn't really the case. Uh, I even had a recruiter say like, Oh, you've got a a great East coast resume, but you're never going to make it in the Bay area. And, Oh. You know, so so there was a reality check there, yeah. but I'm sure we can go on and on about recruiter stories too. <laughs> well, I was going to say that that suit jacket that you had probably made you stand out as uh, not a local in San Francisco. Oh, oh yeah, you I'm, needed the you sure. need the Patagonia vest, you know, if I you know. really want to fit in. And I was uh, smart enough to drop the tie, but uh, over over the over time, so like I end up writing about a little bit of this in. Um, or most of this in uh, the the playbook that I, I have on my website, but uh, Salesforce was one of the first big opportunities I had, and Uber was another one. Both of those were HQ'd in in downtown San Francisco. So I learned quickly after Salesforce. I remember doing my it was like the third or fourth round of interviews, and uh, I, I went into the office, and there was like a puppy dog room, and you know, some guys eating like an ice cream cone who's interviewing me. And that's when I was like, look, I got to drop, I got to drop the suit jacket. Like they're playing by different rules here. And uh, (laughs) so by the time I had been interviewed with like Uber and some of those other ones, uh, I learned pretty quick, but it was, it was trial by fire. And uh, that's kind of a lot of, a lot of the stuff I put out is a little bit about that journey and, you know, the learnings that came from that. And that book you mentioned is called No Flux Given. Yep. And it's available on your website, Mike from Accounting, is it dot com? Yep. Yep. Mike from Mike Accounting. Mike from Accounting.com. Yep. I, I wanna I wanna talk more about the stories in that book. Um, yeah. like you, you talk about the interviews that you did. How many interviews did you do before you landed? Was it the job with Walmart? Was that the one? So I, I think in the book I cover about fifteen. And I, I probably had another five that I could have done, but the lessons started to get a little redundant. Uh, cause mm-hmm. I would learn the same lesson over and over again. So I, I shaved it down to 15 interviews, but, um, yeah, Walmart was the first one that was leaving public accounting. I had tried for, for some other companies, but Walmart was my intro to, to industry. So you, you interviewed at Salesforce, Uber, what were some of the other ones where you interviewed, but you didn't get the job? So yeah, at this phase, let's so just with public accounting experience, because it got a lot easier after I had the dynamic duo of public and industry, right? But when mm. I only had public, which is probably a good chunk of your listeners might might be able to uh, relate to this, uh, Pandora was across the bridge, you know, the, the streaming mm-hmm. radio, they were across the bridge mm-hmm. in Oakland. That was a little bit of a heartbreaker. I got burned by a recruiter there. Twitter was another one and uh, Uber, Salesforce. Um, those were the ones that didn't work out so well. And I actually had to to do what I think a lot of people won't do. Like we kind of talked about some sacrifices for moving and things like that. But uh, the concept of taking a step back in title is, is, a, mm. is a, it's a tough pill to swallow, right? But if I really wanted to break into industry at one of the biggest Fortune 500s, which is what I wanted... I had to kind of swallow my pride a little bit, lose the ego and maybe take a step down from manager to senior, even though a lot of people would say that was career suicide. I kind of felt there's a lot more years in my career that I have to make up for that. So I'm going to bet on myself again and I'll take that senior position and hopefully, hopefully I can get back into like 
management and, you know, see where it goes from there. So, but yeah, that was my path in, into Walmart. And, uh, there, if you're wondering like, Oh, I thought Walmart was in Arkansas, Bentonville, Arkansas. So that's the brick and mortar side of the business, but the e-commerce business, uh, walmart.com is, is the team that I joined. So I was part of the internal financial reporting team for walmart.com and some of the other, uh, online, uh, properties that Walmart owns. Which is, you know, enormous. We're talking. Oh, it's like, huge. Yeah. Like, I mean, in terms of e-commerce volume, I don't know the rankings, but it's like what Amazon and Walmart are right up there. Yeah, it's top three. I think eBay, I think it fluctuates yeah. too sometimes with eBay, but it's huge. And uh, at the time, this is back in 2017. So Walmart had just gotten serious with going toe to toe with Amazon because at the time, I mean, Amazon was already really big. It's not that Walmart was trying to beat Amazon as much it was just trying to take some market share before Amazon gobbled it all up. So like, to your point, even though it wasn't to the, you know, the world's biggest retailer, but the world's biggest e-tailer is Amazon, right? And uh, couldn't really hold a candle there, but there was a big investment to really grow that e-commerce business. So like when I joined, I think the the year over year growth was like 15%. But by the time I had left, it was at like 50, 60% in in growth in uh in sales. And we had acquired a bunch of companies. We got Jet.com, a Hoboken startup to kind of take the reins of the online side of the business. So it was funny because it was like I was at a Fortune One company, or it felt like I was at a startup with a pocketbook of a Fortune One company, which was a yeah. really interesting, uh, interesting dynamic. So you took a you know title demotion in order to get in to the industry you wanted. Yeah, and yeah, a lot of folks aren't willing to do that. It does take it does take an adjustment, right? Yeah. You you work so hard to get to that manager job in public. To give it up feels like a step back, but it clearly was the right choice for you. You don't regret it in retrospect because you got where you wanted to be. So maybe more of us need to consider that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely definitely have no regrets. And I think what I didn't really understand at the time was that the companies that you think you're going to exit into, you know, your dream jobs, they probably don't want a manager managing a team uh, that's doing month end closes and, you know, journal entries and stuff. And they know the ERP system very well, SAP and Oracle. Uh, and then I'm trying to get a job and I've never done any of those things. And I'm supposed to be managing a team of people that can run circles around me. That never really clicked until I actually went and tried to do it. And then I realized, oh, I guess I'm not able to do those things. And, you know, it was a reality check. But again, like, you kind of got to bet on yourself, I think, and put your ego to the side was something that I felt I didn't want that to hold me back. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm still young enough. I got plenty of years of sacrifice. I've done a decade of 70 hour weeks, 80 hour weeks for busy seasons. You mean to tell me I can't make a sacrifice like this? So that was my mindset at the time. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's a very healthy mindset. Uh, so you got to Walmart, you were learning the ERP, you're learning the month end close, all the stuff that you were auditing when you were at Kona Resnick, but yeah. not actually doing. I've always found that interesting, just a side note, that we start our careers auditing the work. You know, <laughs> is it, shouldn't it be the other way around where we start yeah. our careers doing the work and then once we get good at the work, we then go judge other people? 
on that work. That I, makes, I've uh, never understood it. That makes too much sense, Blake. I think uh, I think you're abs- <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. Like, and it's not it's not that you're not prepared. Coming from public accounting, you're you're plenty equipped to actually do the work, but. It, people are expecting you to hit the ground running. And if you're not able to show that you had already done it or reconciliations and things like that, like, you know, people just want to see, see you in action or know that somebody you've already been through the pressure cooker somewhere else before they want to hand over the, the reins to you. So that was similar to why I think once I left Walmart, which it was a great experience, worked on a lot of cool stuff. And um, at that point, I had had, you know, the Fortune 500 experience and the public accounting experience from a couple firms. That's really when I started to get traction in the in the form of actually people replying back to like my my request to like try and get a phone screen, you know, because before that I couldn't even really get anybody. That's why I mentioned some of the letdowns when I only had public accounting experience. I couldn't even get anyone to even talk to me. Right. And that was a, that was a blow, but things had changed by the time I had a lot of even more experience under my belt after Walmart, I had at least had my foot in the door in, in some ways from there. Once I got the phone screen, it took more failures before I realized what I had to do once I got the phone screen, but at least I was getting people to pay attention to me. So let's talk about the phone screens, right? You you finally start getting people to pick up the phone, uh, or at least to schedule that interview. Yep. Like, how many of those did you go through? Oh man, uh, a ton of those. So I'd probably say, like, at best, if you're reaching out to say ten companies, uh, at this point, I was probably getting a response back for maybe three or four, and then the phone screen for maybe one or two, right? So. It was definitely casting a wide net. I'm a numbers guy, so I I put it all out there, right? I, I uh, talk a lot about this in in uh, the playbook, but casting a wide net and sort of having your A-listers and your B-listers, and I was a big proponent of shooting for the moon, and if you land in the stars, hey, that's not so bad either, right? So I put, mm-hmm. I put everything out there and just would see what would come my way. So I don't know. I probably, I probably had maybe... 15, another 15 or so phone screens that I actually landed. And then even less of those would turn into an actual on-site. And then less of those on-sites would turn into the final round. And then not all of those final rounds ended up in an offer. So, you know, it was, it was quite a journey, but, but yeah, I got, I got good at it after a while, right? Like uh, the phone screen is essentially, I mean, I, Again, this is one of those things that you don't think about, but the person interviewing you on that phone screen, probably not an accountant, right? They probably mm-hmm. don't actually know if you had any flubs or missteps in uh, in sort of your your answer to your familiarity with 606 or 820. And, you know, they're not going to call you on that. Uh, I work with our recruiting directors or recruiting coordinators now quite a bit too. So, I, you know, I have a, a little inside and outside perspective on that, but you know, they're basically trying to see like, does this guy fit the bill before I put him in the room and the onsite with the actual people who can call him on those things. So I kind of reframed uh, what I was trying to do in that phone screen. And it was really my main goal was never to look more than one step ahead. Nothing is promised. A lot of those resulted in failure too. So don't, you know, count my chickens before they hatch. Uh, I think as the saying goes and just Really try to impress the the phone screen recruiter 
just for them to feel like I was a culture fit and I checked the boxes for all the various things that I knew that the hiring manager had probably put in front of them to say, try and see if this guy knows this stuff. And, you know, just basically try to get them to want to hear more from me. You know, and you only get 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So over time, I got pretty good at that and kind of had like a little bit of a formula that that I kind of outlined in the playbook is to like, what are the key things that I say? How do I lead off? Which is first question everybody asks you, tell me about yourself, right? Like I should have that nailed down. And then even how do I end it? Most people remember the last thing you say more than anything, right? So uh, at the tail end of each of those, I, I call, uh, I had this little concept called the sizzle reel, which was really like my greatest hits that I can all cram into two minutes to, to really have that recruiter, like salivating, wanting to hear more from me. Uh, and over time I got good at that and I had enough, enough under my belt and, uh, figured out how to let my personality shine a little bit to actually get them to say, Oh yeah, let's move this guy forward. And, uh, you know, it was an inch by inch process, trial by fire, but it ended up, you know, I'm glad that I went through all of that because it did click at a certain point and then, you know, went through that with the phone screen and then went through it on the onsite and uh, inch by inch. And I feel like that's, we talk a lot about learning to fail. I feel like out there now it's almost yeah. like a, bu- a buzz phrase, but when you're really in it and really failing all the time, like you realize how to course correct, you know? So yeah. Uh, I love what you said about thinking about that phone screen from the interviewer's perspective. They are not an expert in these subjects, in the subject matter. So they're not, like you said, they're not going to know if your answer to that revenue recognition rule question was right. You just have to get past them. They're the gatekeeper (laughs) to the people who actually will know if your technical skills are right. So the, the technical skills are not as important in the phone interview. It's, it's about, showing your personality or, you know, are you a fit for this company? Are you a culture fit? I mean, and just demonstrating that you, you meet the criteria that has been set to get people into the room. Yeah. And, and I feel like we probably in accounting to approach it the backwards way we think, Oh, I got to impress them with my technical knowledge. And then we just hit them with all of that. Yeah. And this person has no, you know, you're just, just, it's all going over their head, right? Yeah. They're HR, they're sales, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So that's um, I love that. Even that, even the mindset, Blake. Uh, just to to kind of put a bow on that. Even that mindset made the biggest world of a difference because once you know you're not going to get called on something, your confidence is up, right? Right. You're, you're speaking more freely. You're actually probably performing better. The whole thing is a performance, right? All these interviews are a performance. You're actually performing better simply by understanding what they're what they're looking for what they can and can't call you on and not thinking too far ahead because you're right accountants are so much like oh i gotta tell them all the the codification of this and that and it's like you can but you're kind of wasting your your 30 minutes with this recruiter you know yep yep you got to use that time wisely yeah so so once you get in the room though how does how do things change you know when you're in the room with the controller who's going to hire you or the cfo is going to hire you you know, it's hard because a lot of, at least at the the big tech companies, so like at this point, I'm talking, to, and, and all this is in the playbook too, but at this point, I'm talking about like Amazons and, and Facebook and Nike, uh, Tesla, Twitter and Uber and Google as well. So like that's the, the caliber. And for those type of companies, 
it's a two month interview process. It is a it is a journey. Like you kind of have to have that endurance. Not only that, your first time in the room is probably with a panel. Now you're probably going to be meeting one on one with various people throughout the the interview uh, the interview chain. But most likely, if they brought you on site. And they schmoozed you like it in Facebook. If they're going to have the greeter walk you down Hacker Way and get you all this like free stuff to wow you, to really impress you, they're going to have you meet through at least like four people on the accounting team, right? And obviously the bar is super high. So it's not really just impressing one person. You kind of got to impress four people of different levels. And uh, the, the other tricky part too is they're all going to go back and compare notes, right? Last thing you want is to have like these couple really good work examples. I did this on this client or I did uh, I did this at Walmart or something. You need to have so many freaking examples because you don't want people to say this guy's only got two examples. He's reusing it through the whole interview process. So, you know, I didn't realize that until <laughs> I had already failed Facebook the first time. Right. I ended up getting three shots, uh, which is a, a longer story. But that, you know, I didn't realize that until I had been asked so many tell me about a time when questions to realize I need to increase the amount of examples that I have and the variety. Yeah, that's that's funny. Yeah, the the, the group interview is becoming more and more popular, it seems like. Uh, we were even doing that at uh, when I was at Flowcast. It was, yep. I think, I was employee 80. Oh, and wow. When I left, it was like, 200 or something. I mean, you know, not huge, but we were an LA startup. And we started doing those group interviews shortly after I joined. And I would sit in a conference room with like at least two other people on the marketing team because I was the product marketer there. Okay. And we'd interview people, right? And it would be like a panel. And I always felt bad for the person on the other side because, you know, they have to think of responses for three people. And we only had to think of one smart question to ask, you know, during the whole interview. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of brutal. And they would be in there f- with different teams for like, you know, an hour or more. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I would say most of mine were probably one-on-one. And then a handful of them were panels. Like, for instance, Amazon does an all-day interview. So that this was the final round. This is after I did their their phone screen and then their social mixer that they had to really test the culture thing. Then they had me do a white paper to see if my writing skills were good. Then they had me do an on-site before they eventually said, okay, I'll book a ticket for you to come to Seattle. Right. But when you yeah. go to Seattle, it's an eight hour interview, you know, eight hours Ooh. and and they wait till the very end, at least in my case, the very end, the eighth hour, when you're basically losing your voice because you met with so many people and uh, that's when they bring in what they call the bar raisers. If, if you haven't heard of that, these guys are, they can make or break you within, you know, that one 30 minute meeting. And uh, that was like an example of where they brought in two, two bar raisers, which was like a ex Microsoft guy and an ex Tesla guy that were there to, you know, put me through the ringer to see if I dig myself into some rabbit hole that I couldn't get out and, and things like that. So those panel interviews are, are really tough and, at least what I found, maybe I'm curious, like if this was your experience, but like those panel interviews are tough because there's usually one person that you feel like is the lead and another person that is kind of watching your every move, but they're not saying much. So in the back of your mind, the whole time you're like looking at the person who is, who's not saying anything like, God, what is he thinking? Like, is he looking at my nonverbal cues? Is he like, 
nitpicking every little thing. He's not asking any questions. Like you can't get a read when there's that many people in the room. It's hard to get a read on each one of them. Yeah. We weren't that strategic at that point of (laughs) our stage of growth. You know, we were just, we're like, we heard, I think our, our attitude was like, we heard that all these tech companies are doing panel interviews to start. So we're going to do that too. You know, like copycat kind of stuff. I wonder, I mean, I have, I I just got to wonder like these eight hour interviews, like, has anyone actually stopped to see if doing those eight-hour interviews or those two-month-long processes actually results in better hires? Or is this just something that happens at companies when they get big and wealthy and they they can w- spend a lot of time and money on hiring people and they think it makes them better to do so? Uh, you don't have to answer that, but I just sometimes I wonder if it's all just for show. I, it probably, it almost seems like it because it's almost like the more well-respected or more desirable the employer was like the lengthier the the process, right? So the harder they make it, right? The harder yeah. they make it. And it is very expensive to have a bad hire, right? Because once you join, yeah. like there's a lot of, there's a lot of coaching involved. And, you know, even if you don't do a great job, there's a lot of effort to get you back on track and nobody wants to have to do a layoff. And, you know, so it's very expensive to have a bad hire. So I get why they do that. But I, I would probably say the pandemic has probably changed that a little bit in that one, you're probably not going on site as much. Even back then, mm-hmm. I had a lot of video video interviews that or, or multiple phone screens like for Nike. I think I went like four rounds with just phone screens with various people before they were they said, OK, let's book a ticket to come out to the Portland area. Um so I think it's also not cost effective to fly fly everyone out no, from like no. around the country. So I don't know. I think in in today's state, I bet you that's happening less and less. You know, probably less headcount. So there's less hires anyway. But then there's an inefficiency too of you know like can we move faster? Because I think a lot of times what it comes down to is like you might lose a really good candidate because you had to wait two months. You know, if right. if there was someone else who was only doing it in six weeks, you know, you, maybe you lost a good candidate because a different company had, you know, two weeks less of a of a rigorous interview process. So, I mean, you bring up a good point. Well, whether or not it makes sense, it's the world we live in. Yeah. And so if you want to get that awesome job, if you want to get that Google, that Facebook, that Tesla, that Amazon job, you're going to go through the ringer. I suppose it's good that we all went through the CPA exam because, uh, you know, this is kind of like a marathon like that. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. Got to think about it that way. And I mean, my takeaway from this conversation here is my big takeaway is it's a numbers game. You got to get a lot of phone interviews in order to get the in-person interviews. And, and you got to do a lot of them. You got to be willing to put a lot of time into it. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe the reason those folks that are not so happy in accounting, uh, you know, maybe the reason they're not happy is because they want a different job for themselves, but they haven't been willing to put in the time to go find that job. And like you, you moved across the country to do it. So if you want it enough, you can make it happen, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I'm feeling. You talk a lot about this in your book. I'd love for you to tell us about the book, No Flux Given. Yep. And, and you know, what inspired you to write that and put that out there in the world and what it's about? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to, to kind of chime in on that. But, you know, a lot of it came from, you've done a lot of podcasts. I'm impressed how much content you have out there, Blake, but 
it's only been like maybe a year since the headlines, like popular news headlines have talked about the accounting shortage, talked about the pipeline problem, talked about the image problem. I feel like that's really surfaced because, you know, the the younger generation, the students now are really voting with their feet, right? And they're going to STEM, not accounting. And now it's gotten everybody's attention. So in the last few years, you've seen the the starting salary at the the firms go up, right? But it was mm-hmm. stagnant for so long. So, you know, all of that started surfacing. And, and to your point, there's all this doom and gloom and like, oh, there's nothing, nothing exciting about the work. And a lot of people will look at those top jobs and think that they're, they're so elusive. They're so out of reach. And to be honest, part of it for me was just to, to kind of correct, do my part to kind of correct that mentality of like, it is possible. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of resources out there to say like, here's how you can actually go to do it. And I know because I looked for that resource and it didn't exist back then. Uh, well, it makes sense, right? Because yeah. like the the associations, their job, their primary function is to get people to go into public accounting, yeah. to staff up those firms that are their members. They're not going to create resources to help people leave those firms. No, <laughs> like, no. That's not... Right. Yeah, it's that, and then even um, think about it. Like, if you're in higher education, you get higher marks by saying, "Hey, look how many grads I placed." Well, who needs who needs new grads? It's the big firms. So, your bang for your buck, if you're a college professor, is to funnel people there, and uh, they some you know they're probably big four sponsoring all these events, and I think they even. Are, are reviewing and writing some of the, um, what is it, the AASC, I can't remember the accreditation, but like they yeah. actually sign off on that stuff. So it's like the big four becomes idolized, the partner track becomes idolized. Nobody's talking about industry, right? Or nobody's talking about, mm-hmm. hey, you know, only 2% of the new entrants to public accounting actually make partner. I don't know that anybody ever says that. And nobody ever asked the question, well, what do the other 98% do, right? Like none of that is ever discussed. So that was part of the reason for the, why I wanted to put something out there was I kind of feel like I did it the hard way. Uh, I joke that like I knocked on Silicon Valley's door and, and nobody answered. So I had to kick it in because it kind of felt that way, you know, like, yeah. uh, so that's sort of why I decided to come out and say like, Hey, by the time I had went through all of those 15 interviews and all those those big companies, it was learning to fail. It was trial by trial by fire. But at a certain point, I hit my stride. I came up with this winning formula. I was I was getting consistent results. I was getting a couple multiple offers with top companies, and uh, that's when I was like, you know what? Like these things are not completely out of touch. Maybe people don't strive to do those things because there's sacrifices involved. You're probably not going to get completely around that, but there's also no guidance. The guidance that they had was to funnel them in one way. There's no materials out there to say, here's how you can go get your dream job. And that's within the accounting field. And that's basically why I said, well, maybe I can fill that gap, right? I kind of went through it. I had the winning formula, at least it worked for me, right? And I was able to get it with repeated success. And I didn't come for money. I didn't go to like some fancy school or anything like that. And nobody ever referred me to these companies. So I also thought at one point it was very, you know, far reaching and going to be near impossible. But 
I think what I tried to do at least was to say, hey, I, this resource wasn't there for me when I was coming up, but it's there for anybody who, who might need that now. And my little part that I can do in the accounting world, I figured, well, you know, right now it's easy. You can, to do an ebook is, is pretty straightforward. And uh, so I kind of started it to see where it would go. And after about a hundred pages or so, I was like, all right, I think I, I should put this out there. So, uh, so that's what I did. That's fantastic. Our listeners can find No Flux Given and download it on mikefromaccounting.com. Yep. We will have the link in the show notes on the podcast or in the YouTube description if you're watching on YouTube. Um, Mike, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your story. It's really inspiring and it has inspired me and I hope that our listeners who are feeling stuck or who are feeling like they they are not going to be able to get that job of their dreams will read your book, will follow your advice, and hopefully we'll end up in a better place and we'll all be better off when we have happier accountants in the world. All right. I love it, Blake. Uh, if, if we can, can I throw one back your way? I, I wanted to pepper it in. Uh, you mentioned Absolutely. You mentioned Flowcast. Is that the same Flowcast that does that, that accounting show, PBC? Yes. <laughs> yep. That was after I left, but that, that was the web series. That which, show uh, like a, is is so underrated. I think I know, for right? all like the Office fans, which I feel like there's probably a lot of Office fans listening, that show uh, PBC on that Flowcast put together is awesome. So uh, it, it doesn't shock me that you're doing all this cool stuff now too, coming from like a company that's in you know into those kind of things. And uh, so thank you for doing your part too. Like I was inspired to uh, to rifle through some of your network on LinkedIn and just see like wow, there's a lot of really cool accountants out here doing something. Uh, something big and trying to break that stereotype that that is really trying to say, hey, we're not all boring accountants and there is exciting work out there. So thank you for kind of turning me on to a lot of new people uh, through, you know, what you're putting out there on the podcast and LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, really enjoy it and and looking forward to continuing to follow uh, all the stuff you're putting out too. Awesome. Well, Mike, we'll have to make it happen. I really want to meet you in person someday. So the next time I'm in Chicago. I was just there and I, I hadn't met you yet. So yeah, next yeah, time. Yeah. Next time. Let's do it. Let's do it, Blake. We can jam out. You can bring the cello and I'll uh, grab an instrument or two and we can hang out. Maybe you can borrow one for me because it's a pain <laughs> to take it on the plane. I did that. That's I did true. that for five years in college, <laughs> flying with that cello back and forth to California. And uh, I don't want to, I don't want to do it again. It. Yeah, you're done with, done with that. Well, cool, man. Thank, Thanks, thank Mike. You. See ya. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. And if you did, wouldn't it be nice to get some CPE credit for it? Well, I've got great news. My new app, Earmark CPE, offers free NASPA-approved CPE credits for listening to podcasts, including this one. Visit earmarkcpe.com to download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. That's earmarkcpe.com. 